0: Welcome to the Neck Now podcast, presented by the New England Center for Children. Today's episode features the second part of a lab discussion with Jason Buret, NECC's clinical director. Jason is also a Western New England University faculty member who teaches courses in the treatment of severe problem behavior, verbal behavior, and quantitative modeling. Jason is joined by Dave Palmer, a professor emeritus at Smith College and a fellow Western New England University faculty member. Dave teaches an advanced verbal behavior course in the Western New England University Behavior Analysis doctoral program and a world-renowned expert on B.F. Skinner, verbal behavior, and behavior analytic theory. Dave and Jason discuss replies to the article that proposed reconceptualizing the motivating operation concept. These response papers were written by eminent members of the field and cover a lot of ground. They discuss empirical work speaking to how the motivating operation concept should most accurately be described, the author's interpretations, and implications for changing our conceptualization of the concept. Thank you again to Dave for coming on.
1: This is the uh, Bray Lab special topics discussion. We're a behavior analytic research lab with Western New England University and affiliated with the New England Center for Children. I'm Jason Bray. I'm a faculty member with Western New England and uh, clinical director at the New England Center. We've got, um, as usual, we're lucky to have Dave Palmer with us. Dave is professor emeritus at Smith College and another one of the Western New England faculty. Hi, Dave, how are you doing? Hello there. Happy to
2: be here. What is your sweatshirt today? Oh, this sweatshirt. uh, I'm I'm wearing my Smith College Department of Psychology. Nice. Oh, look at that. Sweatshirt. Uh, It was a fundraiser for uh, the PsyChai of Smith College about years ago. And I bought two of these things. And I'm wearing it because um, the only place I have. really set up for this sort of thing is, is my daughter's bedroom, and it's it's freezing cold, so mm. uh, because we keep the heat off on it, and, and then I, I turn the heat up too late. So I have my sweatshirt on, anyway. Yeah. Good. I like it.
1: You're, you. Dave, you are also attending Texaba
2: today. Yes, that's right. Texaba is in full swing, and I'm taking a, an hour off to uh, uh, hang out with you guys, because um, first of all, this is a It's such a pleasure to have one-on-one conversation, not uh, one-on-one, many-on-one conversations with the Boré Lab. It's always an intellectual feast. Um, And at this particular point in the Texava program, um, I'm I'm taking a break. All all the talks are recorded so I can dip into them later on. Yeah,
1: that's... um, I I don't know I've I have mixed feelings about the the online conference experience. Uh, on one hand, I like that all the talks are recorded because you can go back later and get, get that content. On the other hand, it's it's um, it's not much of a communal event, you know. It's it you could just at later times go and watch those talks, and it's sort of the same experience. So.
2: Well, that's that's quite right. It, it's it's. Um... It's really not like a an evil conference, um, but there are of course there are trade offs. There's no um, you know waiting in lines at the airport and getting frisked by TSA people. And uh, you're
1: highlighting different aspects of going to conference.
2: <laughs> yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. So so w- I, I really do miss the one-on-one um, conversations around the lobby with with, with people. That, that's a a major reason that I go to conferences is to is to get these chance uh, conversations going with yeah. me, um, but uh, under the under the conditions, it's it's probably the best we can do.
1: Yeah, uh, sometime I'll have to tell you the story about how Tim Hackenberg got me detained in the Toronto airport. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I going through I, all, I, I, I... all he did. We're going through customs, and he turns around and goes, "Don't let that guy in," and, he <laughs> <picked him>. and <laughs> hours later they <laughs> let me out of a. So, oh no,
2: that was, that, that, was something. that was something.
1: You're, um, Dave, are you, are um, you're giving a talk there, I'm sure. Is this the, the response class work that you've been, yeah, doing?
2: it's uh, it's uh, an elaboration of the talk I gave at Western New England, um, hmm. at the colloquium, um, on response classes and um, how we define. Stimulus and response classes, and what the definition of an operant is. Um, so uh, since since the Western New England talk, I've had some time to reflect on it. And basically, the position is the same, but I, I feel as though I have a, I can say it more articulately than I could at that time. We, um,
1: I, I want to talk about some of the-, the articles that we queued up to, to go over today. We might want to circle. And I think um, that was. uh, I was. I was sort of mulling over your talk as I was going through some of these readings, and so I I think there are probably some connections there that we can discuss also. Um, the The topic for this week, um, for our last meeting, we discussed the Edwards et al. twenty nineteen paper, reconceptualizing the the notion of uh, the motivating efforts. And there, there were a series of replies, and so for this week we read the replies, and so we've got some questions from the students to discuss. Um, I uh, just sort of like off the top, I'll I'll give a couple of reactions that, that I have, and Dave obviously I want to hear what you to say. Did uh, did people enjoy the the Peter Colleen including a cartoon with his submission? Paper. I, I find Peter Killeen operates at some higher level of order than I do anyway, or the rest of us.
2: Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wrote down a comment. Uh, it's always a pleasure to read Killeen. Yeah. Eccentric genius in search of something yeah. to be genius about. Yeah. Yuri exhorts us to broaden our literary horizons and cites relevant articles. Right. Too polite to criticize the target article in detail. Um, His paper was—it was like reading, um, uh, you know, a fantasy novel or something, Mm -hmm. rich in metaphors and Uh, illusions that you have to go to an encyclopedia to to figure out. Yeah,
1: and and it's um, the the tone is relatively humble. He includes words like "absolutely," that was. (laughs) Yeah. So I had
2: to Google that because I didn't. I didn't know what the hell that was. Yeah, a
1: little, a little um, slang to go with it, the um, high level thinking for sure. I,
2: I also find
1: any um, any idea that I come up with that I think is novel, Peter Clean had it 30 years ago. So we're mm-hmm. uh, we're all chasing Peter Clean, but I I appreciate the tone. I I um, I liked uh, the Carbon paper very much. I find I found that to be well written. and well thought out. Mm-hmm. There were a number of um, students of Jack Michaels who contributed to this, and I think that's apropos. Um, the to to sort of summarize some of the findings from the or the findings that the, the um, with stipulations, the the, um, the theory that was developed in the original paper, uh, and then you know Dave and, and everybody correct me if I'm wrong. There there were a few major. Um, areas that the initial authors were trying to explore. So one is to um to speculate that the the action of a motivating operation is um is mediated through discriminative stimulus control is, is maybe one way to say that when we when we see the effects of a motivating operation the thing that they are modulating is the effect of a discriminative signal. So an, an EO would strengthen the impact of a disturbance stimulus and an AO would weaken it. So this, this idea that they are, they are modulated in that fashion. So as opposed to being, uh, a, uh, just an independent effect. Uh, so I, so that's, um, that's interesting. A number of the authors pointed out that this, that is not, it's not different from the way that Michael laid it out. So, and there were some quotes from the, from Michael's 93 paper, that in which he says that or, or frames it that way exactly. Um, so, so that was a major um, emphasis of the original Edwards paper. They, if I
2: could, if I could jump in, uh, I think um, Jack clearly does say that the MO potentiates discriminative control, but he also provides a second uh, function, which is to. To potentiate behavior irrespective of discriminative control, and what, um, uh, what what I'm not entirely clear on is whether Edwards and, and and company are saying no, it's only mediated by discriminative control, or that all behavior is under discriminative control. I, I wasn't really clear which which position they were taking.
1: So, I, I I read it to be the latter that behave that. Well, did I read it to you? Uh, Let's talk about that. So it's, I read their position to be motivating operations only act through the effect of discriminatory, which, which, but I didn't, I don't know about the other piece. Like I, it it seemed to me like they, at least they didn't explicitly make the argument that all behavior must be under discriminatory control. And I, the the problem that you run into there is with the initial instance. So the the discriminatory control has to come from somewhere. And so there's. Yeah, we we have to we have the generation behavior and encountering of a, a reinforcer to get that in place. But that's that the um, sometimes in in terms of applying behavior analytic theory and operant theory to accounting for um, currently prevalent response patterns, the there's a there's a challenge in accounting for the initial instance we we where does it how can that be an outcome of reinforcement that's something that we've we've run into before um in this notion of how how it, the the first occurrence we wouldn't say is under discriminated control but then what produces it and i i think we we address that in a number of ways one of the ways that we tend to do that is we sometimes the notion of generalization is applied, but that would indicate that there it is, it that's the action of a stimulus. So you've got some antecedent stimulus, and it's it's su- sufficiently similar to a stimulus that's been established as a discriminatory stimulus that it's it's occasioning responding. In other cases, the the what we are seeing, we're making a unit of analysis error. So we're looking at like in the case of somebody. Um, imitating the word methylphenidate for the first time. It's The the unit of analysis isn't the word, but it's rather at the, the level of the speech sound in the case of an echoic or something like that. So, so these, the sort of like first response issue is a good one for behavior analysts to spend some time chewing on and coming to grips with and having some some responses to. Um, the, there were uh, some of the reviews asked some of these questions explicitly. So um, is it the case that um, well can we have let me let's pose this and Dave let me know what you think can uh, can there be non-discriminated operands? so can we have an operant class that is not under discriminative control
2: well uh, I, I want to let other people jump in maybe before I do but well let, let me just say what I'm gonna say uh, carbon uh, gives the example of the man in the desert who's um, extremely water deprived and and there's not a, a scintilla of h2o anywhere in the on the horizon but he still calls out water um, and um, you, you know and we can think of other uh, examples you know your car won't start and you say start damn you um, the, the um, uh, magical man's I guess would be an example where we might say that there's no discriminative control um I was tr- I was trying to th- I was trying to think of examples where there's no discriminative control and, and it it's pretty darn hard um, the w- one example I thought of was uh, the New Zealand sheep in, in New Zealand I, I went to Hobbiton with my daughter back in 2007 and um, wh- where the movie was shot um, and it's just rolling green hills for miles dotted with sheep and all a sheep has to do to ease just chew because there's green grass everywhere there 's no differential availability of green grass it 's just ubiquitous um, but still the, the the sheep doesn't just chew on you know on its leg it, it chews on the grass so so um, it seems like it 's hard to come up with an example of behavior that doesn't have a uh, you know a little smidgen of. of yeah. Control, but but I'm wondering about Carbone's example. I mean, actually, it's from Skinner, but but um, manding for water in the utter absence of any any control.
1: Yeah, I you know it's the you made an excellent point in our last discussion about um, that there can be elements of an experimental procedure for which the the experimenters are not considering there to be discriminative control. Yes, so if you. For example, a pigeon in, in, um, in a operant chamber, and you're just running a, a simple schedule of reinforcement, um, an FR1, there, and the pigeon's pecking the key, you have it arranged for multiple schedule, there is no SD and S delta that you have arranged. But the action that the pigeon goes through, the, the movement of pecking the key, only results in reinforcement in that chamber. And it only results in reinforcement in that chamber when the pigeon is in a particular space and oriented in a particular direction. And I have every reason to believe that those, uh, the stimuli associated there with, with reinforced responding would come to exert discriminative control. Um, so it's, it's tricky. The, one of the, the best that I can come up with is the um, it, taking a, a, a verbal behavior lens is the, um, circumstances in which there is what um uh, behavior that is emitted that is maintained by the effect it has in a person's own listener repertoire so Mm -hmm. this is like thinking or talking to yourself and in those circumstances your listener repertoire is in place and it's it is engaged by the the verbal stimuli that you produce and that there that um the occurrence of that um i i can't think of any stimuli that are differentially associated with your the availability of your listener report if that makes sense Mm -hmm. it seems to me like that's something that is always available but it's only uh the behavior changes as a function of i think independently at least unless i'm missing something motivating operations so Mm -hmm. so when you're in the desert you might i i can imagine that you might talk to yourself so the the strength of the EO would evoke problem solving and you are you're you're coming through every scenario how can i get water maybe if i dig down far enough or mm-hmm. if I break open that rock or what if i cut open that cactus and it's evoking all of this problem solving in you mm-hmm. um but that response is that's like different i think that's a different response class than then being at a restaurant and there's a waiter there and you turn to the waiter and you say i'd like a glass of water mm-hmm. you know so but, it, Jason, but in that way, at least with it, and I don't know how other people feel about it, but it, it seems to me like that that sort of uh, operant thinking, it would be uh, an example of something that would not be under differential discriminative control, but would be affected by motivating operations.
3: Jason, I also thought about self-talk um, when you posed the question about any behavior that might occur in the presence of an establishing operation, but without any discrete. Dis- um discriminative stimuli i guess the only counterexample, or maybe not counterexample, is i'm thinking about the difference in what i talk to myself about when i go grocery shopping if i remember to bring a list versus if i don't so yeah. if I don't bring a list every time i move into a different part of the grocery store i'm talking to myself and usually just repeating the same things over and over again but if i do have a list I I sometimes will like put in headphones and listen to music while I'm shopping or am kind of just absent-mindedly walking through the store because there is an alternative set of stimuli that are occasioning picking stuff up in the cart. No. Um but that's not to say that well, I don't know. I guess the content of our own self-talk or the the I, I hesitate to say topography because it's so abstract, but the, the content of what we talk to ourselves about is likely impacted by nonverbal discriminative stimuli that we encounter.
1: Hmm. Well, but let's, Chelsea, I, I think that's an excellent example. Let's drill down a little bit. The, um, and we can apply this in support of, of um, hanging on to the transitive condition establishing operation concept, I think. Um, they, I would think about that as the, um, the stimuli that you were producing as you were talking to yourself are established as reinforcing when you don't have your list, you don't have your note, you don't have your phone, whatever. And that, that is what establishes the production of those stimuli is reinforcing. And it evokes your, your, um, self echoic that's happening, that, that repetitive responding. Um, you know, or in in a way, we we I think you could consider that to be maybe a self manned in that there's a there's a characteristic outcome ultimately for your listener repertoire there that that it, it would be maintained by you getting those items fundamentally, and the, the repeated saying of the name ultimately results in you picking up the thing, right? So I, so it seems to me like there isn't there's an EO interpretation of that also. And it's not the case that just because whether or not you have your phone does not um, signal the the availability or lack there of a listener repertoire for the verbal responding, right?
4: This reminds me in some ways of Sarah Lechago's example with Mm. um, hand clapping, whereby, you know, there is no differential context Mm. in which your hands are more likely to be there or produce this clapping sound. And that might be tied more closely to MO's for the production of that kind of auditory or even uh, what um, I'm thinking of perceptual, but that's not what I'm trying to say. Proprioceptive stimulation could function as a reinforcer there as well in ways that are not tied to discriminative stimuli. Do we think that is an example?
1: I do. Yeah. Yep. And and, and the other, just to lay it out there quickly, another major, Contention of the the initial Edwards paper was the the dismissal of all of the conditioned motivating operation concepts, um, and so we we had a we had a little discussion before we came on about um, oh, you know let's summarize what a, what was the reaction to this paper and it's there you can we can talk about the reaction of the authors that wrote the reviews I don't know if you would say that's that's um, representative of like a larger scale reaction or anything along those lines They're um, it's a it's a collection of researchers and theorists who have experience in analyzing verbal behavior, the motivating operation concept, a number of, of Jack's former students, people that are experts in this area and who have have important things to say. Um, so, I, you know, I don't I don't there were um, people had a variety of different things um, to point out. And so I, it's one of the reasons that these reply series. Um, publications are are really um, good and I appreciate them because they give you a variety of different perspectives.
4: Right? Jason, I have a brief question. Were these invited replies? H- how does this yeah. process work? Okay, like they were asked to provide their thoughts on this paper.
1: Typically, yes, typically that's the way it works. But there's sometimes there's conversation behind the scenes. So if there's a if there's a paper that's published, people might reach out and talk to each other and say, oh, you know, should, we should get together and do a Write a reply to this, and you might reach out to the editor and, and put it together. So there's that's um, usually yeah. are, oh, I'm getting paged. So that's um, that's usually the way that that works. And then there's often, as there was in this series, a you give the original authors a chance to um, to reply to the replies, so that they've they have a chance to to defend and discuss what they're talking about. Okay, I'm I'm going to pop off for a minute, Dave. Do you want to take over? Maybe um, sure. so you could. Um, address some of the questions that, that the students put together to Dave,
2: and then I'll be back in a second. Okay. Um, actually, I'm going to uh, take an opportunity to just uh, go over a couple of general points. Um, I, I think uh, I think Jack Michael would um, uh, was, was thinking of a discriminative stimulus as one in which there has been a a kind of explicit history of s d s delta pairings where where the discriminative stimulus has arisen from um, uh, from that from that kind of um, you know s d condition s delta condition and would not um, uh, we would certainly recognize that 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 there might be a lot of implicit um, conditioning of that sort that just happens incidentally in an organism's life. And I don't think he, uh, I don't think Jack was uh, insisting that he, I don't think he was making a claim that one way or the other about uh, whether uh, there is discriminative control uh, in all conditions or not. I think he was, was covering his the spectrum of possibilities. And I think he would regard um a stimulus is not a discriminative stimulus unless we can point to a history of differential differential training. Um, now, uh, there were there are a couple of a um, couple of responses that differed. For example, um, uh, Carol Pilgrim um, addressed the issue of whether um, sort of higher level uh, response classes. Uh, Three-term, four-term, five-term contingencies uh, aren't also embraced by the MO concept, and she she thought that restricting it to simple uh, one-term discriminative control would be would be a mistake, or at least potentially a mistake, and 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 requires further analysis at least. Um, so that was a, uh, an interesting point, and in general, she she seemed to uh, come down on the side of sticking with. Michael's definition as being more inclusive and um not not sort of cutting ourselves off at the knees um I thought um Kyle Miguel's response was extremely complete I um when I was reading Kyle's everything made a lot of sense to me um and um I thought he addressed each of the points in a clear way uh for example he he spoke about um Um, Well, I'm quoting from Kyle's paper. Edwards uh, and the others seem to argue that MOs never directly evoke behavior. Their argument centers on the idea that operant behavior is always under strict discriminative control. This is the point we've been talking about all along. Um, Or at least that behavior never occurs in the absence of environmental stimuli functioning as, as SDs the behavior-altering effects of the MOs are always mediated by those SDs. The mere presence of a stimulus during... Reinf- uh, um, but Kayo goes on to say that the mere presence of a stimulus during reinforcement does not seem to be a sufficient condition for establishing it as, a, as an SD. So, reinforcing a lever press in the presence of a light will not establish the light as a discriminative stimulus. Um, so... Um uh now now that, that's a case where um the rat has had only one experience. He's 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 pressing the lever in this context and the light happens to be on. Um but the, the light is not a discriminative stimulus, as Kyle puts it. But there's a kind of implicit training in the fact that the rat doesn't um uh, when the rat moves to its home chamber, the, the, the light is not present and, and doesn't get food and so on for, for any pressing that it does. But the rat's not likely to press anything in its home chamber. So there's this murky area wh- where um, it's, it's unclear how uh, how abstractly we want to consider the discriminative stimulus. And there are a number of other nice points in the Kyle pa- in Kyle's paper that I uh, don't want to spend time on at the moment. Um, oh, and, and Anna Peters' daughter's paper was—I um, uh, I found it very challenging because, uh, like Jack, with Jack's papers, she gets into this these uh, details that I, where my head is spinning. And I wonder if other people had the similar experience where they they have to read something ten times to keep track of what the uh, various functions are
0: found her ice cream truck example um a nice uh, fun fun uh, alternative example to read Mm -hmm. um you know the the, a lot of the papers went to cite the slotted screw example that Mm -hmm. edwards and colleagues used and she said explicitly let's move away from that let's talk about something else and i I found that uh helpful to to think about in a different context but you know the CMOT. Uh, interpretation of that entire response sequence where you hear the sound of the ice cream truck right and um, obviously that is a a discriminative stimulus in the sense that it it does signal the differential availability of ice cream being available but it doesn't necessarily account for you going to search for your wallet so you know I, I found that that as, as in a compelling example of how uh, the CMOT uh, interpretation of the ice cream truck sound may be functioning as an mo with respect to increasing the value of finding your wallet um, and not necessarily being a discriminative stimulus for that behavior because you know it's you're equally likely to to search for your wallet w- without that stimulus being um, present, as a, as a nice alternative explanation or or, or example of uh, the power of the the CMOT concept that you know that the Edwards at all um, uh, they they argue to to do away with that and say that it's not necessarily useful um, and I think they get into to you know, trying to to break that down as a condi- conditional discrimination, um, instead of of um, these the CMOT, which you know Peter's daughter is example, I I find just more compelling in terms of you know, the concept of the CMOT and its
2: utility. Yeah, I found I found that example uh, clear clear too. Um, but then, when she started talking about the responses of her students and how they, they questioned whether, um, um, you know, finding a wall a wallet that's not reinforcing is different from not finding the wallet at all, and in my um, my head started to ache again as it always does whenever I try to th- uh, straighten out these functions. Um, but um, but in general, I, I thought that was a good example. Um, and she also asked whether this conditioned reinforcement uh, scheme was, um, or rather, conditional conditioned reinforcement. Um, uh, let me back up. If a if a if a discriminative stimulus typically also functions as a conditioned reinforcer, in a conditional discriminative stimulus. It's also a conditional, conditioned reinforcer, and she wonders how this differs from an MO. And once again, I find my head aching. But I thought her paper was extremely analytic, and and um, uh, I think Jack Michael would have been proud. But um, I don't know if she put a nail in the Edwards paper or or not, um, because I because I find myself kind of headachy. Um she finds that the edwards treatment of the c m o r requires refinement, and she thinks that the question of direct versus indirect effects is an empirical question um, that can be handled by both jack's position and the revised position anyway, I thought that was a very good very good paper, but i'm not um, um I'm not sure what i Feel about it myself. Jason's back.
1: Just popping back in. Do we? It sounds like we're talking about I- empirically trying to determine whether the effects of the motivating operation are direct or mediated through the effect on the channels
2: that the discussion. Well, we were talking about a couple of the different uh, approaches that uh, uh, Carol Pilgrim's um, asking about uh, higher level uh, response classes and and. Uh, contingency classes, and, um, you know, second order, third order, fourth order, stimulus control, and so on, and she felt that the, uh, that Jack's paper was more encompassing than the Edwards paper, and less likely to be troublesome when faced with questions like hers, Mm. so she liked that Jack's, um, Jack made reference to the kind of everyday use of the concept of of motivation. I felt it. it had a um, maybe better heuristic value than right. the Edwards paper, which is kind of narrow. And then, uh, then I was talking about the, the Peter's daughter paper, which I thought was a, a extremely analytical. Um, but I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure how I felt about each of her arguments, because they were so, they required so much thought. And I find that the more I think about these things, the more confused I get.
1: Well, the, the, I mean, in, in terms of the framework for making these decisions, um, I, I'm I was glad that Laraway laid out a pragmatic criteria for for making uh, decisions about theory. So, what what is this bias does this better allow us to predict and control our subject matter? Can we be, be more effective? Um, and that, the Carbon did the same thing that was in there also, right? Like this, this idea that um, the concepts of the motivating effort, operation have been very fruitful. They've produced um, a significant amount of research and they've been helpful clinically. And Carbon sort of landed on that um, he, he didn't walk away convinced that, um, that there would be a benefit in changing. The way that he already conceptualized these events. Yeah.
2: We, we didn't cover the, the questions that, that you your your students had, had put together, so okay. that might be.
1: We've been we've been touching a little. The, the oh. uh, there's a question about how do we do this experiment, and I do I, I want to talk about that partially because I don't, have, I don't have a good answer for how to do that. Um, K- killeen mentioned. The, are the effects multiplicative or additive? So if they were independent effects, you would it, um, you would expect to be able to see them in the absence the total absence of the control B certified. by so um, and that's that's where finding a preparation that allows you to arrange one without the other would become important. and th- this is where I was going with the potentially, thinking as a response or, or anything like the, the clapping example a response for which they, um, there is no um, differential availability of the consequence. The consequence is always available. And under those circumstances, I, I would imagine that you would not be able to have distributed stones control. Uh, and and therein, any changes that were an outcome of antecedent manipulations would have to be motivating operation effects independently. So that makes those people underneath. You... In other words, you can't, your your you're listener report with the sound of your hands when they clap, that, that, those all that that stimulus always gets So as with that, the slotted screw example, the slotted screw doesn't make it any more likely that you can find a screwdriver. It, but it does increase the likelihood of searching for screwdrivers. So that that you know, again, you're thinking about the preparation. How do you, how would you arrange that preparation?
2: I don't know, Dave. You have any thoughts about that or? Um. Well, I, I l- let, me, let me just give. Uh, I I have one thought, which which I don't know how well it answers your question, but uh, suppose uh, a a rat is treated by God. In a Skinner box, uh, and it's utterly naive, um, and it um, it has a repertoire of ambling around and bumping into things, uh, and a, a light is on, and it uh, bumps into the lever and and gets food, uh, and it goes back and and keeps on uh, pressing the lever and lever uh, again and again and again, and then um, and then God makes the world end. Um, and and uh, Satan asks God whether the light in the in the chamber is a discriminative stimulus, and God says, "No, of course not, because there's not been any differential training." Uh, this is where we're going with that. I see. Okay, <laughs> so uh, yeah. uh, oh, yeah, sorry, I didn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got yeah. making this up as I go along. So so anyway, um, uh, and this, and 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 Kyle. Kaios uh, response uh, gets into this question: mm-hmm. Is the light um, is the light a discriminative stimulus? And he says no, it's not a discriminative stimulus. Um, but um, if you took away the context and put the rat in a new world in which none of the stimuli are present except the light, we would see some some control. That is, the light is part of the stimulus context that evokes behavior. And so there is, uh, there should be evocative effects of the light on behavior. It's just not differential. It's not as if the light has any special power any more than the lever or the smell of the chamber or the, the uh, uh, you know, the texture of the floor and so on. All of those stimuli are equally potent uh, as evocative stimuli um so if you took them all away except for the light we I would I would predict that that um there would still be control by the light
1: yeah and I guess I'm done yeah i'm I'm with you we so now what we need to do this experiment is I think we need God and the devil <laughs> in, a ch- in a chamber
2: yeah
0: yeah I thought kayo's was- a reference to automatically maintained behavior was an interesting one, and in, in the sense that, you know, typically, you don't you see that that behavior occur in in an individual regardless of the the stimulus context they're in, right? Mm-hmm. So perhaps there's a way um to manipulate the the EO, and this gets tricky with automatically maintained behavior because you don't have access to it, you know but perhaps with a response restriction or to prevent the response from occurring for a period of time, you're able to experimentally demonstrate um, that in some way. It seems like a a, a clean way to do it if you can figure out the EO manipulation piece. so that's one that that really got me thinking, and I thought it was a nice a nice reference, and, and brings it back to you know what we do on a daily basis for our for our students. Um, and it's one of the harder things to try to to figure out and even treat sometimes, but um, perhaps there's something there that we can we can capitalize on experimentally.
3: Automatic reinforcement is an interesting example, except that what we've learned from some of Dr. Hagopian's research is that automatically reinforced behavior can be differentially probable given maybe the, the presence or absence of other discriminative stimuli, but it's not necessarily a stimulus differentially associated with reinforcement for the automatically reinforced response, but rather discriminative stimuli associated with other reinforcers. So it, appears under stimulus control but not i don't know what i'm trying uh, to say it's not
1: right it's not, not. The, the yeah. other responses are.
3: right the other responses are right.
1: and it, there maybe one trick here is to try to figure out a preparation that would let you um, establish an automatically produced stimulus as reinforcing and and again, that's sort of like the thinking example. You can always think, and you could always do math, covertly, but you only do it when there's a contingency in place such that a, a correct answer results in reinforcement. And then we have a problem-solving and pre behavior and, and all of the repertoire happens in that circumstance. So maybe there's a preparation which you could try to do something along those lines establishing some automatically produced stimulus as reinforcing and see if we
2: can... Okay. Uh, Kyle gives the example of, um, establishing a, a breaking discriminative control by reinforcing the, the behavior in the presence of many different stimulus conditions. So yeah. there is no differential reinforcement. And I thought that was an ingenious idea mm-hmm. to, um, uh, to get a kind of generalized, uh, generalized control in the absence of discriminative stimulus, the same way we do, we break, um, you know, tact behavior free from motivational control by using generalized reinforcers. Right. So that that seems to me to be an experimental wedge, and and this is when you this is when he brought up that issue of automatic reinforcement. Yep. And under those conditions, it says that mo manipulation has empirically sh- been shown to uh, be a good procedure in, in those conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me. I want to
1: bring something else up. There, uh, one of the students had a question about this and Dave, I want to hear your opinion. I I noticed this phrasing, it's in some of Michael's work and in some of the work of his students. Um, There's a discussion of an effective variable on a response class and then separately the effective variable on the form of the response. So in, let let me look at my notes. So uh, one of the students mentioned Carbone's use of the term to form the response. Uh, and in one of the readings, I forget which one it was, there was, a, um, and it seemed like this was the other way. There was a comment about the, the MO controlling the form of the response and the SD controlling whether or not the, the, the class occurred. And I always, um, I want to talk about what we mean by this. And I, I if uh, the, the closest I can come to coming into terms with this, I, would, I think I would go the other direction, like the, if there was a, an EO in place for water, then depending on, say, the verbal community that surrounded you and the stimuli that were correlated with that, you might emit a man in one language versus another. So in that, in that way, it's kind of like the, the MO increases the likelihood of any, any member of a response class that is maintained by this characteristic consequence. But the, the prevailing discriminative stimulus conditions determine which response is observed. That sort of makes sense, Dave. So that, but here's here's where I want to I want to see if I can get to some clarity. That when I say response, typically I mean functional response class. Normally that's what I'm thinking when I say response. But sometimes when I say response, in other circumstances, I mean a response toography and in in the way that our um analytical approach is applied uh, all of the categorization fundamentally ultimately is functional so it's with regard to controlling variables so it so it it, it might happen to be the case that asking the demand the for water in spanish is topographically distinct from the man for water in english but that's that's like um just a an accident of history that it turned out to be that way Um, and it could be reversed or switched or changed or whatever the the reason the way in which we would distinguish those response those responses functionally from each other is based on the differential uh, controlling discriminative stimuli so we might say we have two different discriminated operant classes in that case so, so, Dave, how do you? I'm I'm sure you run into that. The this this discussion of a one variable controlling is it the the way that the phrasing happens is, and maybe I'm reading it wrong. Is sort of like the the it increases the likelihood of members of a response class, and then some other variable is controlling the form of a response. Are you, how do you make sense of that?
2: Well, uh, not coincidentally, uh, I this is this is what I've been talking about in my in my um, my the paper. Um, I'm suggesting that we drop the terminology of response class. The whole thing? Uh, the, no, no, not, not the whole thing. Uh, to uh, as applied to um, functional equivalent, um, you know, operations. So, um, and we replace it with topographic and functional, um, uh, topography and function together, and. We have a second concept of motivational class that embraces all of the things that are functionally equivalent, but not but topographically different. The point being that they don't that members of this larger motivational class don't co-vary. They, when you extinguish one of them, you don't extinguish the others, okay. and when you reinforce one, you don't reinforce the others. Uh, Whereas the, the motivational variable, they all rise and fall together. Um, but they can be differentiated yep. at the topographic level according to um contingencies of reinforcement. So so I'm I'm arguing that we risk and of course nobody's gonna listen to this, but but my my argument would be that we should we should we should call a response class um uh the uh, we should we should define it in terms of rising and falling together, with contingencies of reinforcement, uh, and and uh, I'm suggesting that that the topography is the physiological mechanism by which responses rise and fall together. So um, as long as the responses have topographic elements in common, then a response. Um, a topographic response class will be anything that includes some subset of these common elements, provided that it, it you know, operates the lever or or gets yeah. the lever or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, so a motivational variable though can embrace a whole bunch of different topographies. We just don't expect the elements within that class to to vary together with ex- with, with the, the classic example would be extinction. When you extinguish, um, when you extinguish, asking for water, it doesn't extinguish going to the sink yourself.
1: Yeah. So so let's let's flesh this out a little bit, um, so that you don't um, freak out any radical behaviors with your
2: um, heretical. It, it's too late for that.
1: Well, um, so it. It, uh, it, on one hand, you've got what you're talking about as a, a motivational class, or um, I'm not up to speed with the phrasing yet. There, it, there's a sense in which, given well, given any um, and the prevailing stimulus circumstances, we we observe some response topography.
2: Yeah,
1: and then we, if we put that on extinction, then we might observe another one and we put mm-hmm. that on extinction, we might observe another one. So there's there's research right. on, on hierarchies of behavior and these sorts of outcomes that, yeah. that make that. Um, but th- there that is to a limited degree. So so there is like, if if you were to explore this motivational class, one way that you might do that is sort of this sequential extinction procedure. So you mm-hmm. put one on extinction, you see what comes up, you put that one on extinction, you see what comes up next until you run out. Mm-hmm. And so that would be a way to catalog the members of the motivational class, right? Right. Good. And, that, and that's and that's distinct from other other response topographies that are not members of that motivational class. That don't they? They aren't. They don't show up when we do the repeated extinction procedure, right? So there's. I think right. I think we want a name for that type of that class of responding. And then separately, we want a name for the the particular. The particular—I don't know if I want to call them subclasses. The the particular—you're just calling them response classes, is that right? Like if
2: yes, that's correct.
1: Okay. Do how do you um, uh, let's? I'm going to give you a different term, and then you tell me what's wrong with it. How how would you? Can we can we make this argument and call the the motivational response class an operant class, and the what you're calling the response classes discriminated operants? Can we do that? Because it seems like the the defining feature for the motivational class is that these responses have been established with characteristic reinforcements, and we they're they're being the probability is being modified given motivating operations. But um, the which subclass we observe will be then a function of discriminative stimulus circumstances. Can we do that? Or um, are you like even given non changing discriminative stimuli, we still get hierarchies. And so that's
2: a problem. Uh, I, it, it will take me a while. I, I don't want to answer that until I've thought about it more because I, I have a hunch that uh, an off the cuff answer will be, um, I'll regret, but um, l- let me just back up a little and see why I am focused on topography. Yeah. Topography because um, when um, because I'm interested in the physiology of how this works. Uh, how, do, how, does, uh, how does generalization uh, yeah. work from, from a particular lever press to another lever press that's similar to topographically? Yep. Uh, it comes down to this idea that the, the um, reinforcement works by strengthening the connections between stimulus elements and response elements. And but when I mean response elements, in the case of pressing a lever, the number of um, muscle fibers that are engaged in pressing a lever on successive occasions is going to differ slightly. Um, but as long as there's overlap between um, you know, fibers 1, 12, and 17, and 1, 12, and 23, yep. there's overlap there, which can, ex- can explain in a very me- mechanistic way why yep. the, the, the rat presses the lever a second time in a slightly different way. Right. the notion of, of um, um, uh, the, the mechanisms under which responses, by which responses hang together. Mm-hmm. See a role for the discriminative stimulus um, in this particular scheme, except at a kind of later, at a higher level, perhaps. So so I see behavior hanging together in these ways because the body hangs together in these ways. Um yeah. And the environment hangs together in these ways. Right. Um, so objects in the environment tend the stimuli arising from a pig hang together because the pig hangs together. Um, and the, the movement of a, of a paw and a lever, all the different movements hang together because they, they share yep. pieces. Yep. Um, so it gives me a, 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 a really elementary mechanistic explanation of how, the world works yeah. uh, and wh- the more i abstract away from that the harder i have the harder more trouble i have trying to rationalize whether something is or is not yeah. uh, a member of something so
1: but, but let's dig in a little bit so um so uh, dave you, you know you 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 and i are both um committed molecularists i think mm-hmm. and, um, the in the Raphael paper there was some um, dismissal of mechanism and I'm I'm on board with mechanism. I don't I don't mind mechanistic causation. I've I've I find that to be pretty useful. So um, but I don't and it's probably just because in, in for most things I swim in a sea of ignorance. I don't I'm I'm not that interested in physiology, but it is it's certainly the case that. Um, topography is, um, is tied to contingency. So the, the actions that you take that operate on the environment do so because they operate on the envir- environment. Like they, they, they have some effects. And so that is dependent upon topography. And I, I, I don't think it's a stretch at all to, to talk about um, the contingencies selecting um, response topographies and bringing them under the control of stimuli that have been correlated with reinforcement of those topographies. So part part of what Dave is saying is that there is um, if if we move to a, a more atomic level, we can view what we see as um, what we might be talking about as singular responses. Even something like pecking a key or opening a door as a cascade of um smaller responses that are that are linked together and are um that are acted upon um you i don't want to say a, a unitary fashion but they're that are brought under control of uh, discriminative stimuli via the process of reinforcement so and it does that makes a lot of sense i think and it helps explain things like response generalization and the, the mm-hmm. fact that some responses share elements and that it, the strengthening the increasing the probability of some of those elements um, would would obviously by definition lead to their emission and if there' are stimuli that then are producing them and there's similar to stimuli that produce them that we might see them also produce some of those elements etc so so that makes total sense to me and I think you I think you have to be right in that circumstance I don't I don't think you're saying anything that that's that is that radical you know I think it, it is definitely the case that that topography has to be distinct for there to be differentiation and for there to be action on the environment in a in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And I think we can I think we can tie that pretty easily to the concept of discriminated operants. So that mm-hmm. if I'm if I'm standing right in front of a door by myself and and I just turn the handle, if somebody's you know in front of me and I'm holding stuff or whatever, I might say, oh, can you get the door? and there are different, my behavior comes with control of the different circumstances that I'm in. And and those responses, then we see discrimination that forms. And, and even for something like I've got, I've got an itch, you know, like, and I normally I would just scratch the top of my head and then, but now my arm's asleep. And so I use my other, I'm, I'm a righty. So I'm, I'm going to use my left hand and I scratch the top of my head. Right. And then both my arms are asleep and now I'm using my foot. You know what I mean? Like they're, even even given those circumstances, if a, a response becomes unavailable or undergoes extinction, we might see a hierarchy, right? And, and there are, now I think we have some interesting empirical questions about what, what affects those hierarchies, what changes the relative probability of those members, can we shift them around? Um, it's an analogy that I, I often give to people that have done clinical work in treating severe problem behavior. Is that the 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 most useful outcome of conducting a functional analysis? Is that it it provides you with the the stimuli necessary, the information necessary to allow you to um, uh, modify the the. I'm going to try to save sort of the motivational class. So normally, I would talk about modifying the response class. That you change the relative likelihood of one topography versus another using differential reinforcement. So, and it, and you're also establishing verbal behavior. So, if you're dealing with a, a a child that is diagnosed with autism who's in who's aggressive or self-injurious, that behavior has a consequence and it gets picked up by ontogenic contingencies, but it isn't verbal it's not it, it isn't acting upon a listener repertoire so when that when that child enters an educational environment you, we can't understand him yet it doesn't the the self-injury regression, it isn't we don't we don't know what he's telling us we don't know what response class we're dealing with and the functional now tells you the response class and from there you can establish a man And that now that child you've you've established in that child's repertoire a response that is verbal that acts upon the verbal community and that listener is then can appropriately respond to and that is such a good outcome for the kid and it also gets rid of the problem behavior for us and so one one of the ways that I, I I think about that is there's there is a response it's a member of a response class we can identify what response class it's in and using differential reinforcement we change the relative. And Dave, you're right. It's to, like, it is based on topography. We're teaching the kid to talk to us or to touch a car or to, to enact with a, a device. And that topographically is different than hitting somebody or engaging in self-injury. Um, and, and I think it, it that matters because of the contingencies that are arranged, the social community arranges those contingencies such that different topographies are selected. And they, so certainly there are different response classes in that. If we you know, the problem behavior then is not the thing that happens when we do the EO, the, the appropriate behavior is. But it's still the case that if the, the demand that we established undergoes extinction, guess what we get? The, we get the old problem behavior that comes back. Right? So I don't know. I mean, it's we um, I I think I think you're I think you're I think you have to be right, Dave. I mean, I think this analysis is really um, on point and useful, I'm. I wanted. I want to keep talking about the terms with you and see if we can, you know, get to a place where I've got a, a, a useful conceptual toolkit to apply.
2: Right. Uh, I. I think this. This. Uh, this is a conversation that we should really continue and expand on, and and and, and dig into in, in greater detail. And I, a couple of things I want to mention. One is. Um, the historical priority of Skinner's terminology having an advantage, so so um, we might want I, I might prefer calling it something a response class because of that sort of historical priority, but uh, the other thing I want to talk about is response competition, hmm. and uh, um, I I, th- I think all of this is woven together into a, a highly molecular analysis of of reinforcement and and um, and in the effective contingencies but um our, our hour is up uh, I d- i don't know if we if we should how we can how we can wrap this up in it a-
1: Why don't well you know why don't so for for our next meeting let's let's read the final the reply to the replies and then why don't we have more conversation with this? so i think okay I, um i I think this is this is crucial to um, our understanding of what fundamentally behavior is, and it's you know like I was saying with the the problem behavior example, it's also fundamental to our to clinical work. It's fundamental pragmatically that that we understand um, the way that behavior is is. Um, how it's constructed how do these response classes get constructed and in, how do they in what ways are they in fact affected by the environments that that behavior encounters I um, I and and just thinking about these things it it some good experimental questions I think sort of struck me and and one speaks to this response competition thing like I was I was sitting this morning wondering how many responses like functional responses you can emit at a time like can you know, like how many response classes can be emitted simultaneously. And I think Mm -hmm. think there's a, there's gotta be a limit, you know, maybe you can walk and chew bubble gum, but you can't walk and chew bubble gum and sing at the same time. So they're like topographical competitions at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's an interesting phenomenon. And the, the idea that the, the, the occurrence of some responses might in, um, I don't know. Is there a physiological mechanism that if, that suppresses others? I'm, I'd love to get into that a little bit. Um, so I think we have there's a lot that we can talk about, and and also, can we develop an experimental preparation that that allows us insight into these motivational classes? Certainly, there's the repeated extinction procedure, but I I think there are probably other methods that we could try to with, and then play around with experimentally the manipulation of variables that would allow us to to change the relative probability of those um, members of that motivational class. Think about it that way. We, um, a couple, uh, I wanna get to just a couple, we'll do this pretty fast. So um, we had student questions about mediational causation. So this like, um, why is a function of X and then Y is a function of mediational variable and then X. And so that's, this is just the idea that um an, an independent variable is effective through its effects on something else if that, if that sort of makes sense like this doesn't directly affect but it affects something else so so one way to think about that is like um julie stein's dissertation in establishing remember and she's she's arranged a multiple baseline wherein the, the most par- parsimonious interpretation is that the the participants are visually imagining or they're visualizing stimuli that they have seen in the past and they didn't do that before the training procedures that she put in place and they they do it after and so that in in a way that the training procedures the thing that she did resulted in them them naming items that they saw previously right so there's the there's the thing she did the independent variable manipulation is the outcome I think the most parsimonious interpretation is that 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 terminal response the naming of the items is is directly under the control of the stimuli that are being visualized so it's there's it's mediational causation in that sense that it's not her naming is not directly caused by the initial training but the training acts through the generation of the covert stimuli that that then occasion the subsequent response so there's that's a a way in which we can think about mediational causation.
4: Are these necessary terms uh, in analysis of, of human behavior?
1: The, the notion of mediational causation?
4: Yeah, I guess I struggled um, in part with the, the use of this term being, or I found it to be used in a variety of contexts. Do we all agree as to what these terms mean when we talk about them in analyzing behavior?
1: I mean, I, I think there's there's consensus on what mediation is and what that what that means. That um, there's it's it is it's common to cognitive psychology. So so th- this is elementary. But if it, sometimes people will talk about um, behavioral psychology as SR psychology, stimulus response psychology, and then you have a a. So, like in cognitive psychology, an SOR, so stimulus organism response. And there's the addition of putatively mediational uh, organismic variables. Now that we have some concerns there, if if they aren't um, part of a, a functional controlling process. So if If you're going to speculate that there are organismic variables that are that are at some level of analysis that we can't observe or manipulate then it doesn't add anything to the functional analysis all you know is you did the thing and you got the behavioral outcome and the the o part doesn't add anything to what we've learned now what's different about julie's study is when we speculate about visualizing things well we all have that experience so that that i don't think is is, um dangerous speculation when you start speculating about um like uh, processing models or visual spatial sketch pads or there, there are these analogies that are um that I I can't create in my own experience they aren't experiential it's not it's not something that is is um, observable at all well then I think we we want to I think we have some concerns about including those in our Theory that they might just not exist, you know.
2: I think it's uh, worth emphasizing the difference between experimentally analyzing something and understanding something. That is, um, uh, uh, a mediating event, um, uh, if if a meeting, if if postulating a mediating event um, uh, enables us to understand how something can occur, whereas otherwise we're completely baffled Um, The question arises, what is the the, uh, status of that mediating event, is it a plausible mediating event, are there reasons to think that there's that mediating event? And the example I like to use is, um, you know, if if the letters of the alphabet are assigned their ordinal numbers, so A is 1 and B is 2 and C is 3, what's what's F plus K? Well, uh, people answer this. Um, uh, Josh has been in my class answering it. I don't... Uh, Remember, let's see, F is 6 and K is uh, 11, so 17. Um, So so people can do this in their heads, but you see them twitching their fingers, keeping track of the uh, ordinal position of the letters in the alphabet and so on. And it all becomes trivial if you assume that people are engaging in these uh, counting behaviors, A, B, C, D, E, F, F is 6. But it becomes... Utterly mysterious if you don't postulate the mediating events, we have no explanation for it if we just look at overt behavior, because the question has never been asked before. It's a novel question. uh, And yet the answer occurs. So we're either left with no explanation or we're left with a mediating explanation that we can't prove, but for which there's plenty of plausible, that is the ingredients of our mediating explanation are themselves plausible. We know that people have learned the alphabet. We know that they've learned how to count. We know that they know how to count the nth letter or the nth item in an array and so on. So putting all those together, along with the latency of the response and you know, differences about whether they're using the Italian alphabet or the English alphabet, that is, there are all sorts of correlated bits of evidence that make it a very plausible mm-hmm. explanation. But if we don't... Compute those mediating events, we have no explanation whatsoever.
4: Both of you referenced co- covert uh, stimulus production there. Is this the particular camp in which talking about mediational variables is is relevant or mostly uh, helpful? Or do we use it to discuss other things we can overtly yeah, uh, you, see you can and broader, measure? You
1: can go broader. I, I wanna Okay, okay. And, and to Dave's point, you can also replicate that yourself. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, you can do the experiment and it's, it's, it's not like in terms of scientific knowledge, you didn't do every experiment. You read an article in which somebody told you that they did an experiment and they saw a particular outcome, right? And Mm -hmm. we don't have a problem with that. And we also shouldn't have a problem with someone saying, oh, this is how I figured out what A plus K equals. I did this. And then you go, that's interesting. And then you can try to replicate that yourself. Where you can teach other people to do it and see if they're able to come to the same conclusion.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
1: know? so so fundamentally, it's you know it's it's okay for there to be um, verbal descriptions of functional relations that we respond to. That's that's okay. We we science is self-correcting through replication, so that's fine, and it's part of being a radical is that we we um, open up to our inquiry private events and. Covert, right, So we don't shy away from them. So, so it's you know, mediation or causation is fine. The thing you want to avoid is the adoption of explanatory fictions. So it's one thing to to do what Dave did and to talk about um, uh, the the sort of responding and um, control exerted by covert stimuli that that would be at play in answering that question. It's another thing to say, oh, that's because of somebody's alphabetical and counting matrix or like. Yes. We, postulate some internal device that does that for you and we say oh what do we what do you study i study counting and alphabetical mechanisms right mm-hmm. so, so the, the difference there is that you're you're treating that like a, a reified hypothetical construct and mm-hmm. that's um, a rabbit hole that we probably don't want to go down all right i'm gonna i'm gonna wrap us for today all right good all right
0: Thank you again to David Palmer for coming on this episode of the Neck Now Podcast, presented by the New England Center for Children. Check back for more lab discussion with Jason Berrett, as well as interviews from those within the nonprofit and others.